Mark chapter 4. Mark chapter 4. Again, Jesus began to teach beside the sea. And a very large crowd gathered about him so that he got into a boat and sat in and on the sea. And the whole crowd was beside the sea on the land. And he was teaching them many things in parables. And in his teaching, he said to them, listen, behold, a sower went out to sow. And as he sowed, some seed fell along the path and the birds came and devoured it. Other seed fell on rocky ground where it did not have much soil. And immediately it sprang up since it had no depth of soil. And when the sun rose, it was scorched. And since it had no root, it withered away. Other seed fell among thorns. And the thorns grew up and choked it. And it yielded no grain. And other seeds fell into good soil and produced grain, growing up and increasing and yielding 30-fold and 60-fold and 100-fold. And he said, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. If you've ever wondered what a teaching of Jesus actually sounded like, it probably sounded a much better voice than that you just heard. But what we just read is one of the best examples we have in all of the Bible of a teaching of Jesus, and it comes from Mark chapter 4. Let's pray together and ask that God would lead us in his teaching this morning. Heavenly Father, oh, this is one of the greatest teachings of your son, Jesus Christ, and uh, Father, we want to learn from it, we want to hear, we want to understand, we want to have ears to hear and hearts to believe and respond. And we acknowledge we are unable to do that without your grace. Holy Spirit, you are the one who shines a light into our heart, you shine a light on this truth, and you are the one who gives us the will and the mind and the desire to respond to your word. Get, guide us this morning in all truth. Shake us from apathy, Holy Spirit. Shake us from our worldliness. Shake us from our sin and turn us again this morning to Jesus. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen. So this is an example of a parable. Maybe you've never heard of a parable before, but a parable is simply an illustration. It's simply a story that's meant to illustrate a spiritual truth. That's one level. On one level, that's what a parable is. But Jesus, when he teaches in parables, like the one that we just heard, Jesus teaches parables to go one level deeper. In fact, after Jesus gave this parable, this is called the parable of the sower, after Jesus delivered this parable, his disciples came and asked him, Jesus, why, why is it that you teach in parables anyway? And Jesus responded by saying to them, to you disciples has been given the secret of the kingdom of God. But for those outside, everything is in parables. And what Jesus does after that is he quotes from an Old Testament passage, a passage in the Old Testament book of Isaiah. It's from Isaiah chapter 6. Isaiah the prophet has just seen this remarkable vision of God sitting in his throne room. And God then commissions Isaiah to go out and teach the people of Israel. And he says, so that they, the people of Israel, so that they may indeed see but not perceive. And may indeed hear 
but not understand, lest they should turn and be forgiven. In other words, what Jesus was saying was that he teaches in parables for the same reason that Isaiah went out to prophesy. Some people will hear the message of Isaiah, they will respond, and they will turn and be forgiven by God of their sins. But, but, God says there will be others who will see the mighty acts of God on display and they will never perceive that God was even among them. He says some people, they're going to hear the message of Isaiah. They're going to hear the message of God through this great prophet and they're never going to believe. They're never going to understand. And he says as a result, those type of people, those outside, they will never turn and be forgiven by God. Jesus teaches in parables for that same reason. And here in Mark chapter 4, Jesus says on one level, this parable is just an illustration. It's just illustrating a point. But on a deeper level, Jesus' parables expose that there are those who will hear and respond to his message. And as a result, they will find themselves inside the kingdom of God. But there are those. They will hear the message of Jesus The gospel, they will see, but they will never perceive. They will hear and they will never understand or believe. And as a result, they will find themselves outside the kingdom of God. The Puritans used to put it this way. Parables, parables are like the scorching sun. The same sun that melts and softens the butter hardens the clay. That's what a parable does. See, the parables of Jesus are meant to either soften you, make you tender to the things of God, to respond to Jesus and approach him for forgiveness, or they will harden you further and further and further like clay, making you hardened to the things of God. So Jesus, in the very first of his parables here, this is Mark chapter 4, Jesus illustrates a sower, a farmer, and he has his bag of seeds and he's walking down through his field and he's, he's tossing this seed indiscriminately as he's walking along. This sower, Jesus says in verse 14, is Jesus himself. He says, the sower sows the word, the word of God, the message of the gospel. And he sows this word and this message of forgiveness of sins and life in God's kingdom, it falls on four different types of soil. Four different types of soil. And Jesus says these four soils represent ways that people hear and respond to his gospel message. Three of these soils represent bad soil. They represent soil that does not hear and respond to the gospel properly. And you see those in verses 15 through 19. But there's one good soil in verse 20. One good soil that hears and responds in a way that leads to forgiveness and entrance into God's kingdom. And Jesus begins by saying some people, some people hear the gospel message, but it's like seed that's thrown along a path. You see this in verse 14. Jesus says there, the sower sows the word and these are the ones along the path where the word is sown. When they hear Satan immediately comes and takes away the word that is sown in them. See, in the ancient Near East where Jesus lived, uh, in and around the area of Jerusalem, in the ancient Near East, uh, a plot of farmland or a field would often have this outer perimeter. And on the outer perimeter, there would be stone paths. 
And these would be trampled on by people who are walking, pedestrians or carts that were carrying goods in and throughout the field. And cutting through these fields sometimes would be hard trampled down soil as well. And the farmer would take his bag of seeds, he would walk on the stone paths or he'd walk through this path that had been cut through his field and he'd go and he'd toss his seed. And invariably, right, as he's going, some of this seed would fall on some of that stony, hard path and soil. And as you can imagine, because that soil was so hard, it was like throwing it onto the carpet here in the sanctuary. Uh, it, it wouldn't penetrate. There was no depth of soil. So the only thing that would happen, it was birds that were flying above would swoop down and they'd eat the seed. So Jesus explains. He says, this is what happens when some people hear his message, when they hear the good news of the gospel, whether it be in a sermon or in a Bible study or in an informal teaching or in a conversation with a friend. Some people hear the message, but it's like seed that falls on a path. It goes no deeper than the surface. All it's good for is to feed the birds. Who Jesus has in mind here are those who hear the gospel, but it is merely background noise. Just merely background noise. For those of you who, who here has kids, young, I'm talking young kids, like kids under 12 or so. You know, if you have kids under 12, there are good TV shows, and then there are the dreadfully dull TV shows, right? Some that fall in the good category are ones like Curious George. Great show. I love George. There's uh, Clifford the Big Red Dog, another great show. There's the movie Frozen. I love the movie Frozen. Don't hold that against me. <laughs> Moana as well, fantastic show. But then there are ones in this category, aren't there? These are the ones that are just dreadful. My kids have been watching this one recently that falls into this camp over here. It's called Puppy Dog Pals. I tell you, I was sitting on my couch the other day. Puppy Dog Pals comes on after this show, Bluey, which is a good show. And Puppy Dog Pals is paying, er, playing, and I'm actually watching this show. And 10 minutes go by, 15 minutes go by, and there's only 15-minute episodes. So then it goes to the next episode, episode number two. 10 minutes go by, 15 minutes go by. The kids are amused. The kids are engaged. But for me, even though my eyes are on the screen and everybody thinks I'm watching, I literally could not tell you what that show was about. <laughs> That's how good the show was. It is... It was so bad that I could hear everything and see everything, but not have any idea of what actually happened. It was just background noise for all I was concerned. Or you can think of people who hear the gospel message sometimes. It's kind of like the terms and conditions that you have before you have to sign up for a website. Anybody ever read the entirety of those? That's right. Nobody has, right? The terms and conditions come on. And nobody in the history of contractual obligations has ever read these things. You simply scroll, 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 click a button, send, and then I get what I want. Jesus says, there are some people, there might even be some people in this room this morning. And you hear and respond to the gospel message in this way. Some people hear the message of Jesus and it is nothing more than background noise. It has no more impact on their lives than the terms and conditions page. And their response is nothing more than indifference and apathy. It never penetrates your heart. I was reminded of a story. This uh, comes from a guy named D.A. Carson, who's a biblical scholar. He teaches at Trinity Evangelical Divinity School in Chicago. 
And he had a friend whose son grew up in the church. And after he had gone to college, he had started having some misgivings about Christianity and had all these intellectual questions that just plagued him. And for that reason, he started wandering off from the faith. And so this son's dad was concerned. So he reached out to his son and said, hey, I I want to engage with you. I, I want to hear your questions. We can read books together and we can wrestle through this together, but I don't want to let you just walk away from the faith. So they got together. The son was receptive to this. They read books together. They read the Bible together. They read books like Mere Christianity, which is out on our book table here, written by C.S. Lewis. They read books like Reason for God by Tim Keller, a book that goes through common objections that people have to the faith. And over the course of months and months and months, finally they've digested these things, they've talked about them. And the dad is sitting down to lunch with this son. And the son says, you know what, dad? I I guess after doing all this now, I kind of realize that Christianity has more intellectual credibility than I gave it credit for. And his dad said, well, that's great, but why don't you believe then? And the son said, well, I don't want to. I don't want to. It is true, a person can have all the answers to their questions. You can answer all the questions that people have about faith, have all their intellectual misgivings addressed, have all their concerns responded to, and at the end of the day, they hear the message, they hear the gospel, but they are simply indifferent. They are plagued with apathy. The gospel is just background noise. The word is sown. You've sown it. You've tried, but... They are not receptive because they are like stone paths that can receive nothing but seed to land on the surface and all that it's good for is birds to swoop down and eat it for lunch. The gospel message is explicit. It goes like this. We are all sinners under the condemnation and wrath of God. We are all People who have rebelled against our maker in his world, but God in his love for us sent his son Jesus Christ to die for our sins, to bear the wrath of God in our place, to become sin for us so that we might be righteous in God's sight. And all we have to do is accept that message and receive it by faith. And the reality is some, maybe again, anybody in this room could be one of these people, some will hear that message and they will either melt like butter, God will soften them, they will hear that and respond in a way of faith and acceptance and a desire to follow Jesus. They will respond like the fourth soil that we're gonna look at a little bit later, but others, they will hear even this sermon and that message and they will simply shrug their shoulders in apathy. They're like clay that becomes harder and harder and harder. When they hear the message, Satan immediately comes and takes away the word that was just sown because it's nothing but background noise. I like the way J.C. Ryle put it. J.C. Ryle was an Anglican minister. He says, week after week, people live on without faith or fear or grace, feeling nothing, caring nothing, taking no more interest in the state of their souls than if Christ Christ had never been born at all. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Some are like this 
stone, hard path, soil. This Jesus has in mind when he speaks of this path. There are some who hear this message and it's just background noise. But what about the other soils? Remember, Jesus mentioned four soils here, four ways of hearing and responding to his message. That's the first. Second, Jesus says, are the soils that are, they're like rocky ground. Again, in any field, right, especially in Colorado, you'd have fields that have plenty of rocks in them. And Jesus outlines what this rocky soil represents in verse 16. And these are the ones sown on rocky ground. The ones who, when they hear the word, immediately receive it with joy. And they have no root in themselves, but endure for a while. Then, when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately they fall away. I think I mentioned this last week. We recently bought a dog who we named Lucy. And when you buy a dog, right, your joy is up here. Yes, we just got a dog. The Lucy's playful. Lucy's so sweet. But then the hour-long barking sessions happen at 2 a.m. And then allergies start to bother you. And then potty training failures start to rack up. Then the 4 a.m. hour-long barking sessions continue. So immediately what started out as joy, Lucy is great, all of a sudden withers into, I blame you for making me get this dog, <laughs> right? Immediately joy, but then trials, difficulties come, and soon reality sets in. Jesus says, again, there's false ways to hear his message, his gospel, that fall into that category. Some hear and respond to the gospel. They're not like those like that are the stone path. Did you notice that? Right? The stone path, it just sits on top. Birds come down, eat it up. These ones actually receive the message. Some receive the message, and they do so with joy. They hear the message of free forgiveness of sins, God's unconditional love. They rejoice. But Jesus says here, Hey, external joy does not necessarily mean a saving response to his message. That's why he says in verse 17, Jesus reminds those who are hearing that some people have no root in themselves. That's key. They have no root in themselves, but endure for a while. Then when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately they fall away. And if Jesus is clear on one point, and Jesus is a very clear teacher, but if he's clear on one point, it's that following him and believing his message in a world like ours will mean some form of hardship, some form of persecution, some form of tribulation. He, he just gives no other way out than to read it in that way. Jesus in another one of the gospels, this would happen after he actually gave this parable, but Jesus is talking to his disciples and his apostles and he's about to send them out into the world and he says here's what you should expect behold I am sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves so be wise as serpents and innocent as doves beware of men for they will deliver you deliver you over to courts and flog you in their synagogues and you will be dragged before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them and the gentiles Brothers will deliver brother over to death, and father, his child, and children will rise against parents and have them put to death, and you will be hated by all for my name's sake, but to the one who endures to the end will be saved. A disciple is not above his teacher, 
nor a servant above his master. It is enough that the disciple to be like his teacher and the servant like his master. If they have called the master of the house Beelzebul, how much more will they malign those of his household? Remember, Jesus last week was confronted by scribes, and they said, this isn't the kingdom of God that Jesus is bringing. He's bringing the kingdom of Satan. Jesus is saying, hey, just as he was maligned, just as he was rejected, just as he faced persecution, so too following him and believing in his good news will mean some form of hardship or persecution and tribulation in this life. Some people today do teach that if you believe in Jesus, you are guaranteed health, wealth, and prosperity. That if you believe in Jesus, if, if you have a poor condition of health, it's because you do not have enough faith. If you are not wealthy, it's because you do not believe in Jesus enough. If you are not prospering in all of your relationships and in all of the things that you set your mind to, then you must not have enough faith in Jesus. And if that's the case, then nobody told the first century Christians that, by the way. Because first century Christians never expected that that would be what a path of following Jesus would look like. The earliest Christians, right, they believed in one God. Their surrounding culture believed in a pantheon of gods. The earliest Christians believed Jesus was Lord while the surrounding culture believed that Caesar was Lord. The earliest Christians believed in mercy, self-sacrifice, and charity. The surrounding culture believed in power, force, and brutality. Earliest Christians were committed to sexual fidelity and generosity. Romans held that sexuality was fluid and saw generosity as absolutely and utterly foolish. Why would you give away what you have worked so hard to accumulate? And because of these differences, the earliest Christians were persecuted, they were arrested, they were treated unjustly, they were ostracized, and they were never guaranteed health, wealth, and prosperity. Take the apostle Mark, right? Mark was one of the earliest followers of Jesus. Mark in the year 68 AD was living in the area of Egypt, in an area of Egypt. And he was in a church on a Sunday morning and a band of people broke down the doors of the church. They grabbed Mark, tied a thick rope around his neck and started dragging him through the streets. And they would run behind him as they were dragging him to his death. They were crying out, drag the dragon to the place of the cows. I don't know what that means, by the way. It doesn't sound good. I mentioned this because I, I recently read this article. Actually, our whole staff has read this article. It's an article by a man named Aaron Wren. And he makes the argument that there was, there was really a turn in American society around the year 1994. In American society before the year 1994, generally, the culture had a positive view of Christianity, meaning society at large viewed Christianity as a positive influence in society. They thought Christians brought a measure of good to society that made our culture a better place. Uh, they believed that Christian moral norms were the basic moral norms that society should follow, and violating those norms could bring negative consequences. But then a shift happened. After 1994, U.S. culture started having more of a neutral stance toward Christianity. Christianity no longer had a privileged status, but it wasn't disfavored either. It was publicly known that as a Christian, you 
could get along, it wouldn't hinder you, but it was just a neutral stance toward Christianity. But Wren argues that in the year 2014, moving into 2015, society has come to have a negative view of Christianity. It's actually a hostile posture toward Christianity. Society has come to expressly reject and actually see uh, Christian morality and belief as a threat to public good and as a negative consequence in our culture. Let me just give you one example of this. I was recently having a conversation with a friend of mine from uh, grad school. His name is Tennyson. Tennyson has gone on to become a psychologist and a counselor. And I called him because I had questions about gender and sexuality and how he understood that from a psychological and clinical perspective. And he was kind of sharing his views of, of where they came from, especially around issues like gender dysphoria. And I said, hey, Tennyson, I'm, I'm going to kind of just lay out what I believe, and I want to interact with you on this. And I said, Tennyson, here, here's what we believe the Bible teaches on gender. God created humankind, male and female, and because of sin, now our minds, our wills, our desires, and our feelings are all tainted in some way by sin. The, the way that we feel about ourselves, about our world, about God, is all distorted in some way. So when it comes to gender confusion and dysphoria, our belief is the best and most, health, most healthy approach is to recognize that our greatest flourishing and life will come when we live into how God has created us distinctly as male and female, not seeking to change our gender identity based on our distress that we're feeling. In fact, our confusion and distress is the result of living again in a fallen world. It's not something to embrace and affirm, but something Jesus meant to heal and change so that we could live as he intended us to live. And I told Tennyson, Tennyson, you're my friend. You love me. I, I guarantee that after this conversation, you're going to be able to hear this. We're going to be friends. But I'm just curious, if I shared that view with some of your colleagues, what would they say about me? And he took a deep breath, paused, and he said, Daniel, they would think that you're an ignorant bigot. When you hear the gospel and believe in Jesus, when you seek to follow Jesus in your life, you will believe certain things you will seek to live in such a way that at some point you will face some sort of resistance and tension, hardship, tribulation, and persecution in this life. What you believe will not always match the world around you. And in that tribulation and trial, one of two things Jesus says will happen. You will either soften like butter you will embrace Jesus, you will become malleable to his message, you will hold and cling tightly to Jesus in this broken and fallen world, or you will harden like the clay. Remember, Jesus is just being diagnostic here. He's just telling us what will happen to some people. And Jesus says this will happen. Some will abandon Jesus in order to get along in the world. By the way, this is one of the main reasons we have what we call family discipleship at Deer Creek Church, right? Because if the world has changed from negative to neutral, or sorry, from positive to neutral to negative in the course of 28 years, then friends, what will the next 28 years bring? 
We need to teach our children what they believe, why they should believe it, and remind them that as families, in our house, we seek to serve the Lord. And that will not always jive with the culture around us. Trial and persecution will come, but Jesus is worth it. He's worth the trial and persecution. So, so far, two false ways of hearing and responding to the gospel. One described as a stone path, the other described as rocky soil. Jesus says there's one more way of hearing and responding falsely to this gospel. He describes it as seed sown among thorns. And now, let me just caveat this before I jump into this one. This is verse 18 and 19. We in the West, we probably don't need to hear this part of the soil. This, this, this probably doesn't apply to us, this soil. Um, but just for the sake of examining everything in the Bible, we're going to look at it anyway, okay? So just remind yourself, we don't deal with any of these problems. So verse, verse 18, and others are the ones sown among thorns. They're the ones who hear the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desires for other things enter in and choke out the word, and it proves unfruitful. Again, we don't really need to hear this, but let's, for the sake of it, right, let's, let's look at this. You see the progression in this parable. First soil, stone. Second soil, rocks. In the rocks, some growth, but no fruit. Here, the seed goes down, the word takes root, and it seems to be growing well. It seems to be growing up, but it can't compete with the thorns that are growing alongside it. And Jesus describes these thorns in two ways. First, the cares of the world. Literally translated, that's distractions of this age. I was, uh, when I first moved back to Colorado, I'm from Colorado, but I moved back here about four years ago. And um, I was sitting in Starbucks, this Starbucks actually right over here by King Supers. And I was sitting down, I was reading my Bible, and all of a sudden, there's this conversation going on at the table next to me, and I overhear the conversation. And they're talking about how they had just moved to Colorado. That's what made my ears perk up. And these two people had moved here together, I, I, I kind of gained from the conversation. And one of them was saying to the other one, hey, I, I've missed you at church for the past couple of weeks. I, I've missed seeing you. I know, you know, we, we moved down here together, but I feel like I haven't seen you on Sunday mornings. And the other guy said, yeah, you know, we've been mountain biking and hiking during the fall. And he's, his friend said, well, I'm trying out this new church that's actually a little bit closer to your house this Sunday. Would you like to join me? He's like, well, I'm going skiing um, because the ski season just started. And finally, the guy said, hey, it, it seems like church just isn't much of an interest to you anymore. I just kind of noticed that since moving here. And the man looked at him straight in the eye and said, hey, you know, the reality is I didn't move to Colorado to go to church. And now I want to be clear with this. Skiing is a good thing. I love skiing, right? Snowboarding's even better. Hiking is a good thing. Mountain biking is a good thing, so long as you don't break a femur. Recreation is a good thing. These are all reasons that we live in Colorado. In fact, all of these are good gifts from God. They're given for our enjoyment. So it's not that these things are bad and the things of this world are bad. The problem is that these good things from God can often distract us, distractions of this age. They can often distract us from the ultimate thing, which is God, Jesus, the gospel, forgiveness of sins, the treasure of Christ. Augustine, who was an early church pastor, put it this way. He said, we run the perpetual risk 
of loving God's gifts more than God himself. We run the risk of loving the gift more than the giver. And as a result of that, the message of Jesus, the good news, no longer looks so good. It's choked out. It's choked out by good distractions after good distractions after good distractions. And what began as good news of great joy for all nations becomes uh, okay news, among other things that are pretty okay. That's the reality. And in Colorado in the 21st century, there are so many good things that can distract us from the ultimate thing. In fact, it's a good thing for kids to play youth sports. That's good. It's a good thing for children to be invested in their academic future. It's a good thing to enjoy video games and media. It's a good thing to engage with friends through social media. It's a very good thing to watch sports and go to games. It's even a good thing to watch a Nicholas Sparks movie with your wife. But, but these good things can soon become ultimate things in your life. And this is key. These good things that we do and we think we control can often become things that control us. Let me give you an example. My kids just started playing youth sports. Good thing. My son plays Eli. My daughter plays soccer. Well, all of a sudden, this thing that we thought was just going to be a one or two day a week thing in our calendar controls our lives, right? We, we constantly are talking about sports. When does McLean have soccer? When does Eli have baseball? When is the game on Saturday? When is the practice on Thursday? Lucas needs a ride to practice again this week, doesn't he? Who's Lucas? Lucas is your son's friend. Remember, he's actually on your team. I'll take your word for it. Was that game rescheduled? Is it too cold to practice today, or do you think practice will be canceled? Who will watch the kids when Eli and McLean have a game at the same time? Are you going to coach again next season? Uh, is it our week to bring snacks this week? Uh, what kind of snacks are you going to buy? Why did you buy those snacks? Mom, where are my cleats? Dad, where are my shin guards? Dad, where's my hat? Where is the game this week? Does Lucas need a ride to practice again this week? Who is Lucas? <laughs> Jesus says... Jesus says the distractions of this age, the inundated 24-7-ness of Western life, the cares of this world are like thorns. They begin as things that we do, and so, certainly, and over time, they become things that do us. They become thorns that choke out the message of grace, the message of God. And they can choke out the good news, making them just okay things alongside other okay things. There's another distraction in this world that we just got over last Tuesday. Right? We can so easily be concerned about the kingdoms of this world. Did my party win? Do we control the House? Do we control the Senate? The answer to that still is, who knows? <laughs> but they can distract you from the ultimate kingdom, the eternal kingdom of God. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Jesus says, verse 19, alongside these thorns of the distractions of this age, the cares of this world, he says, there's another thorn. It's called the deceitfulness of riches. What makes money and wealth and riches so deceitful are, are first, because riches do not last. They don't last. 
I remember this sermon from a guy named Francis Chan, and what he did is he took this long piece of rope. I mean, this had to be hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of feet long, and it was wrapped all the way around the sanctuary, and on the end of the rope, he tied a red piece of tape that was just this long on that piece of rope. And he starts pulling the rope and talking through his sermon, and he keeps going and going and going and going and going and going, and it takes him like 30 minutes to pull through on this rope. And at the end, he said, you see this red piece of rope where the tape is? That is your life on this world. And it will endure on. Continually, 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 continually on into eternity. That is the problem with riches. Riches serve the purpose for this amount of time. For some of us, it's 72 years. For others of us, it's 85 years. For the lucky ones of us, it's 90 plus years. But once you reach the end of the red piece, this finite piece of time, it is utterly useless. Riches will not last and they have zero, zero eternal value. None whatsoever. That's what makes riches like thorns that choke out eternal life. They Because they focus you on this 85-year period that at the end of it will mean nothing for your soul. Nothing. The second reason riches are so deceitful is because riches simply cannot satisfy what your soul needs. They can't. They can't do it. John D. Rockefeller, the richest man to ever live in the United States, was once interviewed and the interviewer asked him, John, you've accumulated all this wealth. You're the richest man to ever live. How much will be enough? You know what he said? One dollar more. One dollar more. Then I'll have enough. You see, that is what makes riches so deceitful is you can never accumulate enough riches to make you feel wealthy enough. You can never accumulate enough riches to make yourself feel important enough. You can never do enough home renovations to make yourself and your house classy enough. And I know I do so many do-it-yourself projects. You can never have enough advanced degrees to make yourself feel smart enough. It will always be one dollar more, one degree more, one remodel more, one upgrade more, one more of this, one more of that, but it will never be enough because riches cannot satisfy your soul. They can't. My favorite pitcher when I was growing up was this guy named Barry Zito. He was a left-handed pitcher. He won the Cy Young with the Oakland Athletics, which made him the most hottest commodity on the free agent market. So at the time, the San Francisco Giants signed him for at what that time was the highest contract of any pitcher in Major League Baseball history. Seven years, $126 million. And he said that as he was putting pen to paper to sign that contract, he said it was the lowest point of his life. And he said he was staving off thoughts of suicide. Why? Why? Because riches are deceitful thorns that cannot satisfy no matter how much you accumulate them, no matter how successful you are. They have zero bearing on your soul and a relationship with God that you were created for. Humans were made to be satisfied by God through Jesus and his eternal kingdom. Only Christ and his gospel and life and his kingdom can endure into eternity and satisfy us in this life. Only the gospel can do that. And the riches of this world and distractions of this age will choke out that satisfying message of Jesus. 
Oh, so three false ways of hearing. Jesus leaves us with this message, though, verse 20. He says, there is a good type of soil that will hear his message and respond appropriately. Verse 20, Jesus says, but those that are sown on the good soil are the ones who hear the word and accept it and bear fruit 30-fold and 60-fold and 100-fold. This type of growth is extraordinary. Not even modern farming techniques can bring this out of a seed. And Jesus wants us to realize something supernatural is happening when this seed penetrates a proper and good soil. When the gospel is heard and someone responds appropriately and doing what Jesus says, something miraculous and supernatural happens, something that cannot be accounted for in human terms. I uh, watched a video of this massive oak tree that was in Italy, and it was, during, it was in a graveyard. Now, what had started out is they had had this oak tree that was next to this one that they were doing the film on, and an acorn had fallen from the previous oak tree through a crack in somebody's grave. And this grave had a huge marble slab over it. And this marble slab was about three feet big and about 15 feet wide by 15 feet long. And as this acorn fell into the crack of this grave, over the course of years and years and years, all of a sudden this root system started to spread and this oak tree started to sprout up and eventually it cracked through that marble. It cracked through the marble and now in its place, is this massive oak tree and what remains of that marble gravestone has been completely pushed out. It had broken through. There is a lot of power packed in that tiny acorn seed, enough to produce an oak tree. All it needed was the right kind of soil. The good news of Jesus has the power to break through and produce tremendous fruit. If only, Jesus says, we hear the good news and accept it. You see that? Those who hear it and accept it. Now, I want to be clear. Good soil is not perfect soil. It is not. This good soil does not mean perfection. Good soil does not mean that there are never thorns that need to be pulled. Good soil does not mean that there are never rocks that need to be cleared or stones that need to be broken up. Remember the purpose of parables. Verse 12. Remember verse 12, it's like God said to Isaiah, some will hear about their thorns, their rocks. They will hear about the paths and stones that are covering their heart and they will never turn and be forgiven. They'll hear, but they're not going to understand. They will see, but they're not going to perceive. And they will never accept that what Jesus is saying here is true. And as a result, they will find themselves outside of the kingdom of God, unforgiven and eternally damned. But the good soil, the good soil, they hear about these thorns and rocks and paths and they realize Jesus is talking about me. He's talking about me. Those things exist in my life. He's talking about me. I remember when I was in college, I had, uh, this is going to be way too much for information for you. Uh, when I was in college, I cheated on a political science exam. Me and my friend cheated on the exam. Our, our exams were completely similar. This is before I was a Christian, so it's good now. Um, <laughs> we cheated on our political science exam. And Liz Fromgen 
who was my professor at the time, she stands up at the front of the class and she says, everybody did pretty well at the exam. There were two exams that were eerily similar. There were two exams that we're pretty sure were taken together. We're pretty sure that there are two exams and two people in this room that cheated on this exam. And I knew right in that moment, she was talking about my friend. <laughs> no, I knew she was talking about me. I knew what I had done. I knew there existed in me something that meant I could be kicked out of that school and never receive a degree and I wouldn't be here today. Good soil hears of the thorns, the rocks, the path, and they realize he's talking about me and they melt like butter in the sun. They accept the message of Jesus. They accept they need a savior that's greater than themselves. They accept that if they're going to have good soil cultivated in them, it's going to have to be a supernatural work by the God of the universe himself. I'll leave us with this. C.S. Lewis in Mere Christianity wrote about our desires and how our desires in this life always have something that is created in the world that's supposed to be met. And he put it this way. He said, creatures are not born with desires unless satisfaction for those desires exist. A baby feels hunger. Well, there's such a thing as food. A duckling wants to swim. Well, there's such a thing as water. Men feel sexual desire. Well, there's such a thing as sex. If I find in myself a desire which no experience or thing in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. Good soil described here is not perfect, but they hear and respond because they realize that Jesus, the one who came from heaven, the other world has come to meet our desires. He has come to give us the forgiveness of sins that we know that we need. He has come. And those who have good soil realize that in Jesus, they have someone who is greater than all the riches in the world. They realize that they have someone who is greater than all the cares of this world. They have someone who actually faced tribulation and persecution in their face, in their place, being crucified on a cross because of our own sin and rebellion. They have someone who can satisfy their souls, not just in this life, but into eternal life. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Let him hear. Accept the gospel, turn and be forgiven. It's one of the greatest teachings of Jesus. Amen? Let's pray. Oh, Jesus, we thank you. We're humbled before this message because it is a message that shines a light into our hearts. You know us, Jesus. You know what is in the heart of man. You know that there are many of us who have hard, stone-like hearts. We pray, Jesus, by your spirit, break hearts of stone. Jesus, by your spirit, clear, clear in us rocks that get in the way that allow, that do not allow the rootedness of the gospel to take place in our lives. God, Jesus, would you please clear thorns that choke out your good message? Jesus, you are the great God of the universe. Give us a love and a desire and a passion for you that far outweighs the gifts that you give us. Turn our eyes to you, Jesus. Satisfy our souls. 
And we pray this all in your name. Amen.